this morning. Chapter 1, right at the beginning. James, actually his name was Jacob. He was a Jew, and that name comes through Greek from Hebrew. There was actually several Jacobs, several Jameses in the New Testament that could potentially be the author here, but we're pretty certain that the author of this letter was James, the half-brother of Jesus. We uh, read about him elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, This is the second apostle that Paul visited after Paul was converted in Galatians 1. James also gives a speech at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Another maybe trivia thing to remember about James before we get into this here is that remember that he wasn't a follower of Christ until after the resurrection, right? This was his brother, and it took something big, the resurrection, to convince him that this guy who he grew up with was actually the Messiah like he said he was. James is also the earliest writing in the New Testament canon, almost certainly. This is the oldest text in the New Testament, written before any of Paul's letters, written before any of the Gospels. This James, James the Just, he was called, was a pillar of the early Christian church in Jerusalem when the church was almost all Jews, maybe all Jews at this point, at least primarily Jews. And he's writing this as a letter of encouragement to a bunch of scattered early Christians. Really early on, the first persecutions, probably around the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, the Jewish Christians at the time scattered, and James stayed on in Jerusalem as the pillar of the church there, and he wrote a letter that would encourage the scattered believers, believers that were mostly poor, that were being heavily persecuted, and this is the letter that he wrote to them. James has, the book of James, all five chapters, has a com- averages a command every other verse. There's a whole bunch of commands in here. It kind of reads like Proverbs sometimes, and it's often called the wisdom literature of the New Testament because of that. We're going to see this morning a couple of of commands and then some tricks for how to obey those commands. Tricks is the wrong word, but he's going to tell us how to obey. And we're going to, we're going to learn about rejoicing in trials this morning, and we're going to learn about resisting temptation. Let's pray, and then let's read the word together. Lord God, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that um, we can be here bought um, as your people. Um, Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that you would just um, open our hearts, that you'd focus our minds, um, that you'd reveal truth to us this morning, that you'd convict where we need conviction, that you'd encourage where we need encouragement, that you'd give us wisdom by your word. Would your word do its work this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read first 12 verses in James chapter 1. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, 
because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We're going to see in these first 12 verses how James is telling us to rejoice in trials. We do that by checking our attitude, by realizing the advantage that trials bring us, and for asking for assistance when we need it. Attitude, advantage, assistance. You like those A's? Alliteration. Frank told me I had to learn how to do that if I was going to preach again. First thing I want us to notice is this is a command here. Verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren. This is a command. Consider it all joy. Count it all joy, other translations say. When, not if, you encounter various trials. The assumption here is that we're going to have trials. We're going to have suffering. What is covered in your mind under that word various trials? What does that cover? I mean, just about anything, right? Are you sick? Have you ever been sick? Do you have a family member who's sick? Are you, are you injured? Do you have lower back pain? No, not talking to anyone specifically. Just all the men over 40. Are you in a difficult family situation? Are you having struggles in your marriage? Does your job stink? Do you need a job? You have troubles with neighbors, friends, at work. Your kids driving you crazy. Are your parents driving you crazy? Maybe it's hard for you being a Christian at work without sacrificing your integrity. Maybe you're not even suffering at all right now. Praise God for that, but don't get used to it. We should prepare ourselves not just to endure, but to enjoy when suffering and when trials come. That's what this is all about. Embrace it. Trials are actually for our good. God's telling us this morning through James. Why? Well, we're going to get there in a second. But for starters, we can remember Frank's sermon all the way back to last Sunday from Exodus. He said, the Lord guides his children with perfect wisdom. He leads them on paths that he knows. This was true during the Exodus. It was true for the early persecuted Christians and the early church. It's true for us now. God knows. We don't have to know everything. We just need to know the one who does know, right? We trust him not only for our eternal salvation, but we trust him to use every situation for his glory and for our benefit. In the midst of a world that's increasingly hostile to God and to living by the ways he would have us live, where it's a lot harder for us now to just blend into culture than it was a few decades ago in our culture, we have to be willing to stick out. We have to be willing to suffer. We have to be willing to trust that he knows what he's doing when he lets us. So question for you and for myself this morning, during the hardest times, during the, a trial you can remember yourself going through recently, what's the attitude that other people saw in you when you were going through that? What was your attitude? I know for me, when I feel like I'm being unjustly accused or, or wronged or I'm unhappy with some circumstance, my attitude is really what it should be. I don't consider all things joy at all times. Yet he's telling us to do that here. We should see hardship as God's blessing. It's an opportunity to see our faith tested and proven real. Not for God. I mean, God knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. But for others, and maybe for ourselves sometimes. 
Tertullian, early church father, tells this story of a group of North African Christian converts around the turn of the third century AD. And amongst this group was a 22-year-old new mother. Her name was Perpetua. You may have heard this story. She left behind a diary. And she, long story short, super summary here, she chose conscious over her conscience before God over going with the flow in her culture that would have her deny Christ in what amounted really to idolatry. And she, with many others, was being led off to public torture and death in the, in the Colosseum in Rome. And it was recorded about their entrance into the amphitheater. And I just want to take away this one phrase. As they were walking to certain public humiliation and death for doing nothing wrong. It said that they were walking with joy in their hearts and they were walking with joy in their faces as they were walking to their death. So how come, you know, when I have a bad day at work or I have a headache or I stub my toe or whatever, I let that ruin my attitude like for a whole day or two or maybe longer. Enduring trials, suffering for righteousness' sake is a blessing. We should let this perspective adjust our attitude when trials come our way. Blessed are those persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That's my one takeaway from our attitude during trials. Blessed are those persecuted for the sake of righteousness. We can also rejoice in trials. We can consider them all joy by knowing the advantage of trials. Knowing the advantage of trials. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's how I think James would, could summarize that. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We live in a culture that's terrified of failure. We're sort of obsessed with safety and comfort and protection, covering all of our bases. We want to avoid trials. It's not something that we seek out. We're also one of the richest civilizations to ever exist, so it's likely that none of us in this room are going to know the sufferings that generations of Christians have in the past, or even in other countries around the world to this very day. But each of us is going to suffer in some point, in some way, especially if we know him. The only question is, are we going to learn what God is going to teach us through the suffering? That's the only question. C.S. Lewis once said famously, he said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's his, megas, it's his megaphone to rouse a death world. Pain is an instrument of God. Do you see it that way? It's how he matures us. Testing of our faith, which leads to endurance or steadfastness or patience, some translations say. This can make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect is an important word to James, it turns out. He uses it, I think, seven times in the five chapters. Be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, a command we're given from our Lord. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. The way James uses it here is referring to a type of perfection that is wholeness. It's our wholeness. It's living an integral life of integrity. It's the opposite of the fractured and inconsistent lives that we often live, living in the world that we do. God wants us to be whole. He wants us to be complete. He will bring us to perfection. Do you want that? Do you want it even if it means that you have to embrace suffering? He's going to take us to a mature faith, he's telling us here. This is the opposite of being anxious and being fractured and scattered. We shouldn't fear trials. 
Sometimes I don't think we should even want comfort, even though we still do, right? I do. Lest we become complacent. Here, there's a long quote here. I'm going to read from A.W. Tozer. It's a, it's a great quote, and this is what I think of when I think of this topic. A.W. Tozer said, the fallow, that means unplowed. I had to look it up too. The fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow being broken up. Such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Had it intelligence, it might take a lot of satisfaction in its reputation. It has stability. Nature has adopted it. It can be counted upon to remain always the same. When the fields around it change from brown to green and black back to brown again, safe and undisturbed, it sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. But it's paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor see the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit it can never know, because it's afraid of the plow and the harrow. In direct opposite to this, Tozer goes on, the cultivated field has yielded itself, yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protected fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattling of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It's been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight. It's miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, to mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Nature's wonders follow the plow. God's wonders follow the plow. Why do we fear the plow so much? Don't fear the plow. Finally, I want to pull out this morning from our text um, another advantage to suffering, advantage to trials that James gives us. That's down in verse 12. He says very directly, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life here refers to a specific blessing for enduring trials. Remember, the audience here was already Christian. And if you're a Christian, God doesn't test you to approve. God doesn't test you to see you fail. He tests us to approve us. The crown of life here probably doesn't refer to salvation in this case, I don't think. Rather, it refers to a subsequent reward or a subsequent blessing. It could be talking about a future blessing. It could be talking about a present one. Probably both, I think. But at a minimum, I think this blessing that we're promised is so that we can live life to the fullest here and now if we don't fear the plow. God uses trials to build us up so that we can be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, a command he gives us. James tells us to do that by checking our attitude, by realizing trials are to our advantage, and then when we need it, asking for assistance. So assistance during trials. Ask and it will be given you. Ask and it will be given you. This is one of those passages of scripture that is really easy to take out of context. You know, if you believe something hard enough, Anything hard enough and you ask God for it, he'll give it to you like a genie in a bottle. And any doubt indicates a lack of faith on your part. So you need to have more faith and not doubt. I don't think generalizations like this are warranted by the text. 
Uh, and even though a lot, of, a lot of commentators talk about James being sometimes difficult to connect and to unify, I think we see James using an interesting literary technique here to connect this all together and to talk about really specific types of wisdom and doubt. Notice this with me in verse 3. James repeats words from clauses and sentences to link all this stuff together. They're not just separate wisdom bombs that he's dropping. This is all connected. He says, knowing the testing of your faith, in verse 3, produces endurance. And he repeats that word in verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, etc. So James is doing this thing, connecting these all together so that we can see that this is to be taken in context. He's talking about a real specific kind of wisdom and a real specific kind of doubt here. And that's linked right back to how God is building endurance in us through trials. So this is connected to asking for wisdom, asking for an eternal perspective in the midst of trials. I can think of some examples of wisdom that I should be praying for in trials. You probably can too. Things like maybe when to hold our tongue, the discernment when to speak and when to shut up. And usually, um, I also need an attitude adjustment, as I've already discussed. I'm really good at throwing pity par parties for myself. It sort of comes naturally, but that doesn't mean that it's wise. It doesn't mean it's something we can't overcome with prayer. So when we need more than knowledge in the midst of suffering, when we need Wisdom, we just have to ask. He is so generous, the text is telling us. Ask and it will be given to you. But ask in faith without doubting. So does that mean if, if I doubt, I'm out? If I doubt, God doesn't hear me? I think it would be a misuse um, of this passage to, to say, to conclude that any and all doubt is a bad thing. Um, James isn't telling us here, I don't think, to approach God dogmatically every time we pray. Like we can drum up more faith in ourselves by not thinking and by sweeping honest intellectual doubts under the rug. Doubt isn't always bad, actually. In fact, doubt can be good if it's something that humbles us and draws us closer to God to find the answers where we doubt. Overbelief is not a virtue, J.P. Moreland said. But it is part of the reason we have so many Christian denominations in a church that Christ prayed would be unified. So I think we should be careful is the point here and how we generalize ask in faith without doubting. So the kind of doubt James is talking about here, we get some clues in verse 5. He talks about God giving to all generously without reproach or without reprimand, some translations say. He's, he's getting at God's character here. In verse 8, the doubter is called double-minded, double literally double-souled. The word means unstable. He has a divided allegiance. We shouldn't expect wisdom from God when he's allowing us to suffer if we're not asking for it in faith and trusting that God knows and wants what's best for us. That kind of doubt where we're questioning God's character, questioning God's intention for us, that's antithetical to faith. And if we approach God in the midst of a trial with that kind of a divided allegiance, we shouldn't expect that he's going to give us what we think we want in the moment. When we ask him for what we think we want and not for what he knows our need, not for what he knows we need, it's another example of the kind of doubt, I think, that would hinder the wisdom that we're being told to seek here. 
When we lack wisdom, the kind of wisdom required to suffer right, to suffer well, ask God, he'll give it to us. That's what this is saying. But ask in faith, trusting that he's better informed and has better intentions even than we might have for ourselves. That's the point here. Mark 7 tells the story that you'll all be familiar with of of the man with the epileptic son who's having seizures. And that, that man said to Jesus, if you're able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus, well, first he said, if you're able, like, do you know who you're talking to? But then he said, all things are possible to the one who believes. And the boy's father then cries out, Lord, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. Was that man doubting in the James 1 sense? I don't think so. A clue there is that Jesus answered that prayer and he healed the boy. Let's notice also before we leave that this text doesn't say that even for the bad kind of doubt, the doubting in the character of God, which we can safely call sin, I think, here, even for the bad kind of doubt, God doesn't necessarily remove his blessing or deafen his ear to the prayers of the doubter. Verse 7, the doubter simply ought not to expect he'll receive anything from the Lord. It doesn't say that God will never bless the doubting person or the person with weak faith. I think that's significant. God's grace isn't limited by our weakness or our failures. Is there anyone in here who can't say amen to that? Materially poor believers are to derive joy from focusing their thinking on spiritual riches. Verse 9 is about that. Likewise, the wealthy should remember how fleeting riches are and be humbled. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. The cross lifts up the poor and brings down the high. It's the great leveler of men, one commentator said. Our perspective should be the same, materially poor, materially rich. These are themes James is going to get into later in his epistle. We should all glory in him and what he does in and through every circumstance, not in our own riches or our own comfort or our own ability. We should count everything joy. And when this perspective is difficult, ask in faith, and he'll give it to us. He'll give us the perspective we need. Let's move on in our text and finish off this morning. We're going to go to verse 18. Read with me verse James 1, 13 to 18. He said, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We're going to see here how to resist temptation by understanding its source, by understanding its steps, and by knowing the solution. You know, in a way, every trial that comes from the outside world, which is what we just got done talking about, is an opportunity for temptation in our own hearts, which is what James talks about here in these verses. He gives us a recipe for resisting that kind of temptation. That's how we persevere under trial and get the crown of glory that verse 12 talked about. So God can approve us and sanctify us and bless us. So the first thing that's important to, to, to dealing with this and understanding it is 
understand temptation's source, and that's our own desires. We could say our own heart here. My translation says lusts, but I think desires is a better, is a better translation, a better word for us, because we understand what it means. Verse 13, the word tempted, that's translated here, tempted, is the same word, exact same word, that was used for trials <clears throat> back in verse 2. Those trials were outside circumstances causing us to suffer. Now James is talking about these temptations on the inside. In the midst of those trials, the trials give them opportunity. The ones that we should count as joy, instead, we end up being tempted to sin by them. God tests our faith by, for the purpose of bringing us to maturity. He does not tempt us with evil. God doesn't tempt, either directly or indirectly. God doesn't seduce us towards disobeying him. He doesn't fix our fate to disobey him. Any of these things, I think, would suggest that God's responsible for evil. And this is what James is rejecting directly in this statement. Let no one say they're being tempted by God, he said. God doesn't tempt you. Questioning God's character is not an option. God is for us. He tests our faith to prove us true. He tests our faith to build us. He doesn't tempt us. We are tempted, and temptation's seed is found in the desires of our heart. We were created in great glory, Scripture tells us, image of God, but we're fallen, we're marred by rebellion, by selfishness. Our natural desires, which were originally good, have become twisted, right? They've become a source of temptation and a source of stumbling. Temptation is when we are carried away and enticed by our own desire. It says here, you know, we desire food naturally, right? That's not necessarily a bad thing until we overindulge to the point of gluttony. Then it is. We desire comfort, yet we're so easily greedy and covetous, wanting what's not ours, or complacent, missing out on nature's wonders because we're afraid of the plow. Every person, I think it's safe to say, is in this room because of sex, created by God for our enjoyment and for the propagation of our species. Yet the corresponding temptations to adultery and pornography and other infidelities are strong and they can seem overwhelming at times. A positive self-esteem, that's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but the temptation to pride is perhaps the most satanically subtle temptation of them all, right? So temptation starts in our hearts. James is saying here. And that's the first step in a sequence that leads to death. So let's talk about temptation steps. In verses 15 and 16, James is showing us what this sequence is. The path to sin requires our cooperation, it turns out. The path to sin requires our cooperation, so don't. When lust has conceived, the words he uses here, note the uh, procreation metaphor. And as they say it takes two to tango, there's an unmentioned party here. James actually doesn't mention the devil, but he's most certainly referring to him here, the father of darkness who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, as Peter said. So there's a spiritual reality involved in temptation. This is combines with our fallen desires, and it gives birth to sin. And then sin, in turn, brings forth, literally, births death. That's what he says here. So death is the grandchild of temptation the source of which is our unchecked desires that come from in here. While natural for fallen people in a fallen world, this whole process 
is not necessarily inevitable for the believer. We don't have to cooperate in this case. James is telling us here to resist. What if with God's help we can check our desires at the temptation phase? I'm not saying we can all do this all the time. Don't misunderstand me. But what if we could? This desire to temptation, to sin, to death. That's the progression here. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13? He said, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it, or you'll be able to stand up under it. The NIV says, don't be deceived, James is saying. Don't be led astray. God's not tempting you. God is for you. He provides a way out for you. You just don't see it all the time or enough of the time. Chuck Swindoll told the story, um, which is appropriate here. He talked about a father and a son who are walking home, and they pass a canal. And the dad says to the son, son, I forbid you from swimming in this canal. Okay, dad. Son says. But then later on, when the son comes home, his dad sees that he's carrying a wet swimsuit with him. Where have you been? Swimming in the canal. Didn't I tell you not to swim there? Yes, sir. Why did you swim in the canal? I feel like I've had this conversation before. <laughs> well, dad, he explained, I had my swimsuit with me and I couldn't resist the temptation. Why did you take your swimsuit with you? Well, so I'd be prepared to swim in case I was tempted. So. Obviously, he didn't have to swim just because he had his swimsuit, and obviously, he didn't need to bring his swimsuit with him in the first place. Question for me and for you this morning, what swimsuits are you carrying around? What ways are we making provisions for the flesh when we shouldn't be? We shouldn't take temptation lightly. Unchecked desire brings sin. Unforgiven sin brings death. But we can resist the devil and he'll flee from us, James is going to say a couple chapters from now. No regenerate believer needs to cooperate when tempted, so why would we cooperate? Stop cooperating. That's what James is saying. In the final two verses this morning, we're going to see James reminding us why we can resist in the first place, how we're able to. We get to temptation solution at the end here. Knowing the word of truth. Temptation's solution is knowing the word of truth. Notice again how God's character is emphasized in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. The father of lights, the creator of all heavenly bodies, yet he himself is unchanged by their constant motion. He's consistently good all the time in every way. In contrast to the, to the unmentioned father of darkness here. God is good. He is for us. Every single good thing, in fact, comes from him. He's literally as good as it gets. He's the very standard of goodness, it turns out. The perfect standard that we can never live up to helps us to see our need for a Savior because he's so perfect. But his goodness, out from that, is also what flows his desire, his decision to provide a Savior for us. By grace, through faith, we're given the gift of salvation. We're literally rebirthed by him. Verse 17 here, the word translated from above is the translation of this, is the same word that Jesus used in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again, literally born from above. So this is here talking about 
salvation. Verse 18 is in the past tense. Remember, the audience is already Christians. He looks back to the gift of salvation that Christians receive from God, an act of his sovereign will that brought us forth, literally rebirthed us. Sin brings forth, literally births, death, but God brings forth us by the word of truth. Another translation reads, Like this, it says, by his sovereign plan, he gave us birth through the message of truth that we'd be a kind of first fruits to all who, of all he created. What's the word of truth here? What does that mean? What's that referring to? Certainly it's referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A couple verses to jot down. Paul Paul uses language in the same way. Colossians 1.5, Ephesians 1.13, 2 Timothy 2.15, I'm sure a bunch of other places. This word of truth this logos of truth, the Greek word. This might sound familiar to you if you've ever studied John 1 in any depth. In the beginning was the word, the logos. The word was with God and the word was God. The word of truth here has a double meaning. I think it's also referring to the person of Christ himself. James here is addressing practical solutions for us to the slippery slope of temptation, how we can resist, how we can avoid sin, And in doing this, he can't help but mention the reason that for the believer, sin no longer leads to death. Desire, temptation, sin, death. I would wager, if I were a betting man, that everyone in this room, that everyone you've met, that everyone you know, that everyone you work with, at some point, has failed to hold up against God's perfect standard of justice, of holiness. At some point, temptation has produced sin in every single person. I don't think anyone in this room would deny that, but I don't know. Romans 3, Paul said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John said, 1 John 1, 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. The psalmist said in Psalm 130, If you, Lord, kept a record of sin, Lord, who could stand? Again, Paul, in Romans, The wages of sin, of, sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, it's important to point out at this point, because James jumps to salvation, that nothing in this whole epistle, nothing James is talking about, is even relevant. It doesn't have any meaning at all to you if you've never accepted that free gift of God, like we talked about a few minutes ago in communion. If you don't believe in Christ like that, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if that's if you've placed your trust, your hope in anything else, you're choosing to die in your sin. This natural progression is not something that you can stop in your own power. But the good news of the gospel is that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. That's why Jesus came. The one who believes in him is not condemned. If you believe in anything else or if you believe in nothing at all, you already stand condemned. It's the most important question you could ever ask yourself. Have I believed in him? Everything hinges on that question. It's not a question you should be complacent about. It's not a question you can ignore beyond this life. If you're more in that boat, the I don't know boat, than the I'm born again boat, then here's a question for you this morning. Why? What's holding you back? What are the doubts that you have? Because you stand condemned. You're on a road to certain death, and you don't need to be. Could you be honest with yourself this morning? Have you thought about 
God offering this free gift? Could you be honest before God? Could you be honest with the person sitting next to you, with me? I'd love to talk to you after this. Doubt's not a good enough excuse. God loves you even if you have doubts, and he'll save you from them. All right, let's uh, flip over to that first page if you're taking notes of your outline. Flip back over to that first page and look at those underlined sections that you filled in or if you, my intention was to have you fill those things in. If you f- followed along, you'll see that in those underlined sections you filled in the words of Jesus as recorded by Matthew, much of it from the Sermon on the Mount. These are being taught, clearly, by his half-brother James. And just like we can find joy, and we're supposed to find joy in trials by heeding the words of Christ, we resist temptation by knowing the divine word, Christ. James is teaching us here that temptation's solution is a living relationship with the living God, a solution possible for every believer. So it's possible for every person who believes and repents. Remember right before Jesus told Peter that he was going to deny him three times? We don't tell this story as much, but he said to Peter, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have you all to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith might not fail. There's no reason why as one of God's regenerate believers bought for a price, united with his son, a kind of first fruits or best of all creation, ever has to yield to an instance of temptation. He always provides a way out for us. We just don't look for it enough. As he sanctifies us, as he makes us more like his son, closer to being perfect, closer to being whole, making us more useful to him to accomplish things of eternal value. In each temptation, we're at a crossroads between sin and sanctification. Christian, what excuses are you making? What swimsuits are you carrying around? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. God has so much more for us, and he's faithful. He always provides a way out so that we're able to resist as we're commanded to in this scripture so that we can consider it all joy, so that we can turn temptation into sanctification, letting him grow us towards perfection and wholeness and integrity. Now, we still fail, of course, from time to time in the flesh for now, but we should fight like our life depends on it when we're fighting sin. Our battle's not with flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of evil. We can resist. We should resist. I'm going to finish with another Tozer quote. He said, I'm not afraid of the devil. The devil can handle me. He's got judo I've never heard of. But he can't handle the one to whom I'm joined. He can't handle the one to whom I'm united. He can't handle the one whose nature dwells in my nature. Let's pray. Gracious King, thank you for the encouragement from your word this morning. Thank you for commanding us to do impossible things, but then giving us your power to do them. Lord, that's humbling. Thank you for fighting and winning the battle that we can't fight for ourselves. We praise you, Lord, for the way that your word equips us and speaks to us. And we ask that uh, it would, if there's any among us who need your wisdom um, right now, Lord, 
Would your spirit prompt them to ask? Uh, Lord God, and would you meet them there? We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.